Now the following factor of enlightenment is energy. The first two we have already discussed, mindfulness and the investigation of Dhammas. The next one, third one is energy, obviously mental energy. And energy is a word that we use ambiguously in our language. And so we need to really think what does mental energy mean? It's the opposite, of course, of the third hindrance of having drowsiness in the mind, fogginess, of having torpor, of also of disinterest. It's also the opposite of indifference, of um, the no-caring attitude, can't be bothered. A mind which is energetic is a mind which can direct itself. And a mind which has no energy, doesn't know where and doesn't, is not able to direct itself where it wants to go. Now with the five spiritual factors, and which are the, also the five spiritual powers, which I talked about last night, as having two pairs, there is the other pair of energy and concentration, which also have to balance, just like faith and wisdom have to balance in the same way energy and concentration have to balance. And if energy is overbalanced, it results in restlessness the mind goes from here to there and it often does it attaches itself to one thought process and immediately it goes to another and that then becomes discursive thinking and has no balance in concentration and again the mind can't direct itself it's just all over the place so the balance of concentration has to give that happy medium where we are totally alert, awake and aware, and yet the mind has its boundaries, which happens in concentration. We direct it to where we want it to be. Now, in an ideal situation, the energetic mind, which is also concentrated, can become one-pointed. And only then do we have the meditative factor of absorption. So the energy factor, which balances with the concentration factor, is the ability to have meditative absorptions. And if that doesn't happen, then we have one of two possibilities in the mind. Either the energy, which is curiosity, which is proliferation in Pali Papancha, which sounds just like proliferation, the mind which is not only curious but also has this um, 
aspect of trying to be everywhere at once afraid to miss anything so it gets going here and there or we have the possibility of the mind which is neither awake nor aware it's not asleep but it's foggy and covered over with a sort of um, torpor which makes it impossible to know exactly what's going on in very sometimes it can result in a sort of a trance-like state which happens to people instead of meditation and the way to recognize it is that if one feels tired after the meditation it's been trance if one feels energetic after the meditation it has been awake and aware the mind has been concentrating if the mind feels as if it had been working then it's been discursive so if there is energy and concentration the mind regenerates itself it's the only way that the mind can ever get new strength through concentration it's the one way of gaining the strength which is necessary for clarity a mind which doesn't have that strength remains muddy it sees things colored by and covered over by greed and hate I want it or I don't want it and that of course does not produce clarity but the mind which can regenerate itself through concentration has the ability to be clear the clarity the amount of clarity depends on the amount of concentration and this we might as well have that mentioned right now this is one of the many reasons why meditative absorption is not just nice but essential it's the only way to have the regeneration of strength of the mind now if we want to regenerate the strength of the body we lie down and rest and it does have a sort of dewy generation nevertheless even though we take a nap or sleep at night as it gets older it does not regenerate itself fully this is not the case with the mind going to sleep does not regenerate the strength of the mind because as we all know even though we might not have that our experience but we know through the tests which have been made the mind dreams so it has to have the regeneration through concentration and then its age has absolutely nothing to do with its strengths nothing whatsoever so there is 
not that loss of strength if the mind is treated right. Most people, of course, don't treat it properly. And even some people who could do it properly, treat it properly, also don't do that. It is the only way, there's no other, we have no other opportunities to regenerate strength in the mind than through the meditative absorption, where the mind stays still. And as it stays still and does not think, it only has its own purity to attend to and therefore the energy of the mind becomes one where clarity arises automatically. This is the one reason for the teaching of the Buddha, which again and again, in all his meditative explanations, uses the jhanas as a pathway. That there are other opinions about that is again view and opinion. It has nothing to do with the facts. The views and opinions in the world are manifold and they are, of course, that which are constantly using up our mind energy our views and opinions. It's also said about energy that we should keep away from people who have no energy, who are slothful and cannot arouse enough energy to sit down to meditate because that too takes a mental energy to sit down and do that. Because we are so easily influenced and being easily influenced we then of course justify the other people who don't have sufficient energy then of course don't even consider this detrimental to themselves and therefore we then also justify that. If we are together with people who are energetic in mind, it's very easy to follow their example. And just as easy to follow a different example. So again and again, no matter what is touched upon, the Buddha says, careful with whom you associate. Watch out. Use wisdom. Don't go by general opinions. The mass of people do not have clarity of mind and therefore cannot have the proper views and opinions. They're all colored by, or discolored, one should say, by their own likes and dislikes. So one should not go by mass opinion one should use personal wisdom and be very careful where one finds one's associates now energy as one of the factors of enlightenment can be considered to be extremely important because otherwise it wouldn't be one of the factors of enlightenment and as we practice, we arouse these factors and they only become factors of enlightenment 
when they have become strong enough not to be deterred anymore when the strength of all these things is so that there is no way of influencing us in a negative way anymore then we have the strength when we have that personal strength then of course we can be the right associates for others and this is of course what the practice aims for that we are the right associates as long as we haven't got those factors established within us we have to watch out who we go with, who we are with and later on when they are established we can be helpful to others it's very often the case that people start helping or think they can help others before they've even helped themselves it's um not very not very wise to do that because the help one then extends to others is also questionable energy as a factor of mind is totally underrated people don't have any idea how important it is and yet anyone who's ever accomplished anything anything at all that anybody would admire has had that factor in mind energy in mind now we can also of course have energy in mind and do things which are not admirable at all and we could think of dictators <laughs> and people like that who have a lot of energy in mind but because the concentration factor has not been cultivated and developed that energy does not have the right direction if the concentration factor is developed we come to the purity within us meditative absorption always touches upon purity and then that energetic mind knows its direction another reason why meditation has to result one day whenever in meditative absorption otherwise energy in mind can take a totally wrong direction and does very often in the world that we know most people's energy in mind is just sufficient to keep alive and that's utterly foolish because none of us are going to make it it's a useless enterprise using one's life to keep alive all of us are going to lose that one so if that's all we're doing in this lifetime and then find that difficult on top of it because most people do it's a waste of a good human life a total waste nobody's going to stay alive and the mind energy that all of us have every person has it can bring us to do things which are beneficial to ourselves and others where we add to the goodness that exists 
if there weren't people in the world in this human realm here that we live in on this ridiculously small globe that had the mind energy combined with concentration directed towards the good the whole thing would have collapsed long ago because there's so much torpor and also so much badness which has to be counteracted if we have ever prided ourselves in being a nice decent good person we've got to do something about it so that it actually has the outer manifestation energy and concentration together will do that one alone won't because concentration alone as I've already mentioned can result in this trance state or can result in sleepiness which is not the trance state but it's equally useless and can result in a lack of interest where people then say oh I only want to meditate or they have lost all interest in their ability to be of use to others if one has only worked in meditation towards calm and there are such um, what should I say groups that do that then this is a very common result that the whole personality loses energy no interest because the concentration is so strong that no direction can arise and insight is never even thought of has no part in that particular pathway and there are some pathways that although the meditation itself could be used for both it's not being attended to and if that happens the mind does not just become sluggish in meditation it becomes sluggish in daily life and with a sluggish mind of course one can't tell what's right and what's wrong anymore what all one wants is to have some peace and quiet where one can hide behind maybe meditation or behind the sluggishness where there's nothing really of interest anymore so one has to be very careful to be balanced just as we have to balance the feminine and the masculine within us which is described in this particular uh, teaching of the five faculties as faith and wisdom which is thinking and feeling we also have to balance the quiet mind with the energetic mind energy with concentration the quiet mind the calm mind is not a nothing mind if anybody should ever have thought that or suspected that or 
doesn't know yet what it's like to have a quiet mind. A nothing mind is the mind that is sluggish and has no energy and goes nowhere. It always contracts, it's a contracted mind. The concentrated mind is an expanded mind. It can concentrate on levels of experience in consciousness which are totally unavailable to a person who has not learned to concentrate. So the contraction of mind is the result of the non-energetic mind, the non-concentrated mind. But when there's concentration, the mind has left behind its disturbances and has come to the point of expansion. And in order to expand and become pliable and malleable, one has to use, of course, energy. So the two always go together. It's never a mind that has nothing. It always is a mind that knows, but in a different way from the ordinary I know. The Buddha also mentions in the context of these factors of enlightenment that it's very important to ask. To ask people who have an understanding of the teaching. To use one's inquiring mind, which is of course also an energetic mind, and the inquiry into Dhamma needs into Dhammas, needs the energy, to use that also for questioning. Because in order to question intelligently, one has to already have some understanding. So the more energy and concentration arise, the easier it is to question. And then, because of the questioning, the investigation becomes also easier. All these factors work together. None of them are separate or stand alone. Mindfulness needs mental energy. In fact, one has to urge the mind, come on, be mindful, rather than discursive and just sleepy. The mind which is mindful is a mind that's awake. Buddha said that we are living in a dream. In the relative reality which we take for the only reality there is, this is a dream world. Obviously, to live in a dream, we have to be asleep. So even though we think we wake up in the morning, we don't. We remain asleep. It's only a difference between lying down and closing one's eyes and maybe snoring to walking around with the eyes open in this dream world which we take to be reality. And this asleepness in daily life can only be counteracted through mindfulness. And therefore, mindfulness to also needs the mental energy 
which we can only arouse and multiply energy through concentration. So you see that the whole thing has the um, connotation of working together. None of these factors are separate uh, training uh, possibilities. All of them need to be trained together. An interesting aspect of the seven factors of enlightenment is the way they are um, enumerated. The first ones are for insight. And only the next ones are for calm. Usually, the Buddha enumerates calm first and then insight. Because that's the way it works. But, and that's the way he says it works, but here and also in the Noble Eightfold Path, it's inside first and then calm. And therefore, it is often said, and also said by the Buddha, that it doesn't matter which way we attack the problem of being asleep in waking hours. Inside first and then calm, or calm first and then inside, it doesn't matter. Whichever our tendency is. Now, some people don't find it so difficult to become calm. Their minds already have a certain um, level of calmness. Other people find it extremely difficult. They have to get inside first. And as they get inside, the mind eventually calms down. It doesn't matter. Because the inside that we get before we get calm is not the profound depth of insight. It's just enough to get calm. And then the calm again is used to gain insight. The profound depth of insight is that which leads to stream entry, to the first experience of Nibbana. So any insight that we gain can lead us to calm, which then will lead us to insight. But here we've got the calm, uh, the insight factor first, because, again, as we investigate the Dhammas, the calm will arise and the energy is absolutely essential. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed, but trying to meditate uses up energy. And only when we get concentrated do we regenerate new energy. That's why one is tired at night, having done absolutely nothing other than sitting on a little pillow. One is tired because the mind has used up energy. However, should the concentration have been good, one isn't tired because the mind has got new energy. So it's quite easy to see whether the concentration is working or not. And if it is, tiredness is not a factor. In fact, it is said about the Buddha that he slept two hours at night every night and those two hours he slept mindfully now mindful sleep is something entirely different from the sleep we know totally different and one can try to do it but it usually doesn't work until the mind has become so concentrated that it doesn't lose that concentration in sleep 
Mindful sleep is sleeping and knowing that one is sleeping. So it's totally different. And then when one does that, two hours are plenty. There's no need to sleep any more than that. And it's only possible for a mind which has been totally concentrated, which has been absorbed uh, for some length of time during that day. Otherwise, the mind goes into a stupor, into that deep sleep of a stupor where we don't know what's going on. And that's, of course, then also dullness of mind. So it is very desirable to sleep mindfully, but it is totally dependent upon our ability to concentrate. The next factor of enlightenment is joy. And joy has two connotations in the words of the Buddha. One is an inner joy which is generated through an outer happening but not through sense contact which is a gratification of the senses but still through sense contact but not through the gratification of the senses and the other kind of joy is part of meditative absorption now obviously both are necessary and both are meant and again, the Buddha says not to be together with people who don't, are not joyful. Stay away from them, like a plague, because they can really um, influence one's own mental states unless one is so um, solidly entrenched already in the um, beneficial mental states that nothing can happen anymore. Obviously, the opposite of joy is the um, unhappiness or the um, grief, lamentation. And we'll talk about those also a little more detailed, but just enough right now to say that all those states of mind are defilements, every one of them. The pure state of mind is joy. Now, joy is not exhilaration, laughing, dancing, jumping. It's not that at all. It's an inner feeling of satisfaction and contentment. And the worldly one, which comes through the sense contact of hearing, the Buddha said, arises when one hears the true Dhamma, and knows with enough wisdom that that's the truth. And then the joy inside of one arises, knowing that there is a way out of all problems. We don't have to get stuck in them. And that joy, of course, makes the mind light, buoyant, and makes it much easier then. In fact, it's a prerequisite for proper meditation. Now, there are many other things that we can do to make that joy arise. The first one is this one, which I've just said. But there are others. 
and we can deliberately make it arise and we should and they are all recollections and therefore one has to first have the four requisites which we have already talked about so that one has the recollection of no remorse and no regret the first recollection can be of one's own moral conduct not having hurt anybody not having done anything which is wrong joy arises in the mind that there is no need to be remorseful no need to regret what other people think and say is totally immaterial oneself has to know whether there's any cause for regret now a meditator who meditates for any length of time not just started will have to be far more careful than an ordinary person who is not concerned with that an ordinary person who is not concerned with the refinement of mind will probably be quite happy and could be quite and should be quite contented about not having killed stolen lied raped or gotten drunk quite all right but a meditator has far more to watch out for and that's why if you remember i gave the explanation of the refined moral conduct because a meditator who is far more aware of his or her own mental state through mindfulness will recognize very quickly that having said something which was wrong or could be construed to be wrong or having thought something which was unkind would feel remorse most people that have no inkling of mindfulness of mental states don't care because they don't notice it that they're thinking something unkind a person who meditates becomes aware of mental states and is quite remorseful when a thought has occurred which was negative unkind um hurtful not even speech just thought speech even more so because the thought can of course be substituted quickly the speech once having come out will have to take quite a bit of explanation to substitute you know i didn't mean it and don't take it to heart and uh, it's all right you know i just came out like that and all the rest of it so there's a long explanation necessary and people do give those explanations sometimes they say you know i'm sorry about what i said i wasn't myself this morning well very interesting then to find out who i was myself yourself himself herself whoever so the speech takes more to um substitute again once it has come out whereas the thought process is quite easy to substitute and yet the meditator who is refined or find mental states will feel quite um could feel quite agitated without joy and the next meditation might be quite perturbed equally so when 
the senses haven't been guarded enough for a meditator. Now, a non-meditator does not have that as a difficulty. In fact, that's their life, life uh, ambition to have nice, exciting, interesting, um, exhilarating sense contacts. That's what life is all about. The more, the better. But for a meditator, this is dangerous, and that's why one of the four requisites, besides small conduct, is guarding the senses. Again, if the senses got too much action, and there is then too much, has been too much input, the mind may be quite disturbed, and there's no joy in the mind at all. So that again is another requisite. But in order to have that joy in the mind, one can recollect one's own generosity, one's own giving, no matter what it was, whether it was material, monetary, whether it was sharing skill, giving oneself to an ideal, giving love, giving compassion, giving time, listening to another, anything that one can recollect, that one has done well, which is not the same as don't let the right hand know what the left hand has been doing. It's just the opposite of that. Recollect. Be happy about it. We have lots of things that we are not so happy about. Let's really be happy and joyful about the good things we have done. Again and again, recollecting. And the more generous one is, the easier it is to recollect the generosity because one doesn't have to go back ten years to remember when one made the last birthday present. One has done it every single day and there's no difficulty. And the con- there is a satisfaction in mind, a contentment. And this satisfaction and contentment does not only help the meditation, of course that's its primary purpose of the recollection, but it gives a base to live on, a base of contentment. And when there's a base of contentment, and that was another one of the four requisites, when there is a base of contentment, the world does not have such a pull. The less pull the world has, the easier it is to meditate. And the easier it is to meditate, the easier it is to see absolute reality one day. So the contentment which arises in the mind from this recollection of one's own generosity and one's own morality, one's own self-discipline, one's own renunciation, renouncing that which is detrimental to the spiritual well-being. That's what renunciation is all about. It doesn't necessarily mean shaving one's hair and living in a cave or anything like that. It means renouncing all that which is detrimental to spiritual growth. We can also recollect if we have any understanding of that the great genius of the Buddha's teaching and arouse gratitude. And we can recollect the greatness of the Dhamma, the teaching itself, and be delighted to have found it. 
not that easy to find even though there are so many volumes of books on it it's very difficult to find the true Dhamma even that what is sometimes called Dhamma is, may yet not be the true Dhamma it's not so easy and even in those countries where it is the state religion it's not so easy to find the true Dhamma it's always there somewhere one has to search for it so to be delighted to have found it another way of arousing joy and then remembering the Sangha which are not necessarily the people who are wearing these robes but and also not the people who are sitting on little pillows but they are the people who have propagated the Buddhist Dhamma in its true essence and to remember them over the centuries and again have this gratitude and delight now gratitude is something that most people don't just don't have they don't know who to be grateful to they don't know what to be grateful for most people take everything for granted now here is an occasion not to take for granted this Dhamma of the Buddha cannot be taken for granted it is a jewel without price and the Sangha who has given it to us over the centuries always having given it from teacher to disciple again and again they were the ones who have upheld the goodness and righteousness now the Dhamma law of nature truth in this case not necessarily only that what the Buddha taught because Sangha has been people who have propagated truth and righteousness we can be grateful for to those where we have a connection to and that gratitude is also a cause for joy because it is unpolluted every mind state that is, is polluted will make meditation difficult or impossible either way every pure mind state makes meditation possible and makes it happen gratitude is a poor mind pure mind state gratitude and the love which arises out of that makes the joy possible now if we can one day say that what I love the most is the Buddha and the Dhamma and use that love to love others we have a pure love because that means we love the purity and we don't love just because there is somebody there that is in our opinion lovable that purity helps us to meditate all these recollections our possibilities whichever it doesn't matter some people will be able to recollect their own generosity others can recollect their own morality having done no harm having been righteous and others can actually have the gratitude for the Dhamma 
or for the Buddha's genius and with that gratitude have a loving heart at the same time all of any of these all of them will arouse joy joy is a pure pure state of mind the opposite is impure and joy means inner joy it doesn't mean this kind of uh, exhilaration that is because of pleasure it's totally different from pleasure it's an inner feeling of being attuned and at one at one with within what's going on within and what's going on outside of oneself now this joyousness is a prerequisite for proper meditation coupled with energy and concentration and can also arise out of the confidence and the wisdom that wisdom that this is true what one is doing the best thing one can do and the confidence that one can actually do it the self-confidence all of these states bring with it the state of mind which is then capable of becoming concentrated enough so that the joy of the second meditative absorption becomes a meditative factor a meditation factor which means the meditation subject now you remember or maybe not but maybe yes that the five factors of meditation which counteract our hindrances joy was one of them counteracting restlessness and worry obviously that's a pure state and I also mentioned at the time that it is the meditation subject for the second jhana maybe I should mention at this time or could anyway that it has a very important function and should never be passed over lightly all of these mental states have enormously important functions otherwise the Buddha wouldn't waste his time explaining them over and over and over be a waste of time of an enlightened one's life and he did that over and over the joy of the meditative absorption is a totally different one of the one that I have explained about the recollection the recollection joy that we gain is a feeling of being at ease and a feeling of being contented but the joy of the second meditative absorption is a total immersion in a state of mind which is not available ever outside of the meditative absorption it's a total immersion where the mind knows nothing except the utter lightness and completion apparent completion I should say of what it's been looking for all its life 
having that inner joy at, in the second meditative absorption, sometimes of course it's mild, but if it is truly a second meditative absorption, the second jhana, then the mind is completely and utterly drowning in a feeling of having gained access to what it's always wanted without any outer condition and that is its most important function to recognize after coming out of it not while it's going on because that stops it effectively after coming out of it to recognize that that what the mind always wanted mind and heart always wanted is unavailable in the world it doesn't exist no matter what we can get in fact it seems the more we can get the less it exists but no matter whether it's more or less it just doesn't exist now we know because now we got something which is totally different and because we know that it doesn't exist in the world the whole temptation of the world with all its proliferation and all its aspects of beauty and sound sight and sound or taste and smell whatever it is that we are tempted by pales into insignificance it's all grey as a tempting morsel to be consumed doesn't mean that the sky instead of blue is now grey it just is not significant anymore it remains just as blue it's probably bluer than it was before but nothing is there that can offer anything in comparison and because of that renunciation is no longer a chore or a difficulty it's an obvious immediate result there's nothing that can actually do anything for one other than what one has done in meditation therefore the second jhana the first one is only the entry hall huh? one's got to, got to go through it otherwise one's not going to get into the house um, second jhana is of such importance and has to be done properly it is quite alright to eventually let the first one fall by the wayside or just walk through it because the entry hall doesn't have so many uh, wonderful aspects to it it's not even furnished properly it's just to walk through the second one has to be known and it's not only gives it the energy of the mind which I've already explained but it has this enormous importance and if one can't if one has done it and can't see it one hasn't done it properly one may have thought one has done it but if after having done it one can't see that the world's got nothing to offer nothing that one could possibly want then it hasn't happened properly one's got to try again one hasn't given the mind enough impetus to really be in it 
Now that is not to be construed to mean that one is now removing oneself from the world. People misunderstand so many times, so many things. It's uh, all due to the fact that we can only hear what we really want to hear. It means that whatever it is that is out there, it needs to be attended to, but that's all. It just needs to be attended to. As efficiently and as well as one can. And the less one expects results from that what one is doing out there, the more efficient and the quicker everything happens. It just works by itself. Because there's nothing that it's supposed to give one. It's not supposed to give satisfaction, it's not supposed to give praise, it's not supposed to give contentment, it's not supposed to give anything. It just needs to be attended to. And there are innumerable things which need attention in everybody's life. If one doesn't learn to reduce them, one's also not quite um, using one's time effectively. One can reduce what needs attention. Most people try to increase what needs attention in order to have a little more proliferation and distraction. But a meditator doesn't need that at all. It is therefore also very difficult to understand if anybody's ever got to the second jhana, why a person should stop doing that. It contains everything that one could possibly have wanted. Obviously there are more because it's only number two and there are eight. But we'll just be contented with that one right now. And because it is the first one which really brings with it this enormous difference of viewpoint. What the world actually contains what we think it contains, and what it actually contains. A totally different matter then. It contains creation. That's all. Nothing else. And all creation arises and ceases. That's all it contains. That's all there is. There's nothing else. And once one has seen that, then one can live in that creation happily, satisfactorily, contentedly, for as long as oneself is part of creation, hasn't disintegrated yet. And that's all. Nothing else to do. It just is the way it is. The second jhana should do that already. There are the other uh, meditative absorption who will, which, sorry, which will do other things. Second meditative absorption has another um, benefit, which is also important. It brings self-confidence. That self-confidence arises out of the fact that one knows that one's desires need not be gratified in order to have joy. In other words, one can rely on oneself not to do anything stupid. One feels totally at ease about one's reactions. Everything's fine because one feels quite faithful to one's own reactions. One knows that one can gratify a desire if one chooses to because at that particular moment it happens to be 
the polite or the um, appropriate thing to do like you know, accepting food from somebody who's offering it or something like that and one wants it so it's quite alright to take it but one doesn't have to go out and search for the gratification of desire one doesn't need to use one's time and energy like that and also one isn't going to do anything which one might later regret because out of desire which includes out of hate this inner joy which comes from the meditative process has a residue it is impossible I might say that it is impossible to have second jhana while uh, boarding a bus but it has a residue it has a residue of knowing that one can get back to it and it has like a as if it's a packing there's been a soft packing inside so that whatever happens as impact from outside isn't getting to hit one very hard but falls down onto this soft packing and that kind of inner feeling stays with one so then when one sits down to meditate again the uh, arousing of that joy is no longer uh, possibly even necessary it's there already it remains there and with that one has an easier time of the, in the meditation and eventually is able to do it on demand which is what has to happen with the jhanas they have to be happening on demand one should not and I'll say that uh, quite purposefully one should not um, move past the second jhana into the following jhanas without having actually experienced it to its fullest the time element is up to each person having experienced it to its fullest means one has to spend a bit of time on it but whatever time that is it's entirely arbitrary joy as a, medit- as a factor of enlightenment means of course the second jhana the first jhana isn't mentioned it's not important enough it's the entry the entry hall. so second jhana is mentioned as a factor of enlightenment and we can see from that that or I hope we can, we can see by now that the whole thing is a conglomeration of teaching which all culminates in the same thing again and again I've said it many times I'll say it again calm and insight and calm meets the jhanas there is no other meaning of calm in the Buddha's dispensation the word calm in the English language means something entirely different it doesn't mean the meditative absorptions most people have never heard of them and never will hear of them and that includes at least 99.9% of mankind and never hear of them and never will the word calm in our ordinary day-to-day language means nothing other than the opposite of being excited 
So that's not a meditative absorption, the opposite of being excited. I mean, nobody's excited when they try to meditate, and yet the mind goes all over the place. So it's not that at all which is meant. The word calm, as a translation of samatha, has a specific meaning. And the word insight, as a translation of vipassana, also has a very specific meaning. And um, Venerable Buddhadasa wrote in a very interesting book, I'll give a very interesting talk about that, the two kinds of language. That there is language for everyday use, and that there is language which is specifically the meaning of the Buddha's teaching. And this is here a very um, prominent case, the words calm and insight. Because calm, as the opposite of excited, is totally meaningless. And insight, as understanding what makes my car run, is also totally meaningless. Or understanding why I got so angry because somebody said something nasty, that's also meaningless, that's not insight. The word insight means anicca dukkhanatta. Everything that arises to be seen in one of those three characteristics, the investigation of dhammas. So far our daily, daily duty here, while we're here, mindfulness is of the first importance, but the second factor of enlightenment, the investigation of dhammas, should be our mindfulness object as often as we can possibly remember. Looking at whatever arises within or without, there is internal and external mindfulness in one of those three characteristics. And seeing, is it true? Is it impermanent? Or is it true? Is it unsatisfactory? Or does it give complete and total satisfaction and joy, which is lasting and not to be um, lost again? Or does it have a core and a substance, or doesn't it? Either one of the three or all three, it doesn't matter. So our mindfulness can go in that direction to investigate everything. The tree, the, the um, uh, grass, the, the cars, the house, myself, the thought, the feeling, the body, the cockatoo that's sitting out there, anything, doesn't matter, whatever it is investigate in the light of that calm means meditative absorptions insight means anicca dukkhanatta in the Buddhist words in the Buddhist terminology in the English language they mean different things and because that is not useful for us to use that meaning of the ordinary language we must apply the Buddhist terminology so that's enough on this subject. Any questions? Pamuja. P A M O J J A. There are three different kinds of joy in Pali. The uh, ordinary the ordinary one is this one, Pamoja. Then there's uh, the highest one, which is Sukha. But here it's Pamoja. What else? 
anything else other than trying to learn Pali. I don't think that's important, really. <laughs> One of the things why it why some of the Pali words are useful is because they are used in some of the books and because of that when one reads the books and one knows the Pali words one doesn't have to run and look it up in the dictionary or in the back glossary but one knows exactly what the person is talking about and specifically when these books are written um, transcribed talks from East Asian teachers they use the Pali words in abundance because that's the way they were brought up and they learned their Dhamma they learned it with the Pali words they didn't, they're very often um, not aware of the, that this word has a perfectly legitimate translation so when one reads any of their books of these present day teachers of them in the, uh, from Asia these words are helpful they're helpful to know but otherwise not necessary anything else? You're supposed to ask questions in order to make the second factor of enlightenment happen. That's what the Buddha said anyway. <laughs> yes, that's what he said, questioning. Not very soon. No, but it's Drink is more important. <laughs> yeah, it has to send those messages and mm. the mind has to answer them, otherwise the body dies. And so the mind sees that there's a self-preservation element in taking notice of the body and it tends to shrink away from it for that reason. Shrink away from what? I thought you meant that it shrinks away from stopping its activity. Yes, yes, yes. Well, now when that comes to mind, this particular thing, which is quite uh, correct, you'll have to investigate what is the self that I'm trying to preserve then you have to do it on the inside path because what you were um, describing I'm assuming that this is happening while the mind is calm and concentrated 
Right, now you have to go to the inside part. What is the self I'm trying to preserve? And there you have to go into, the all, into one or all three of the characteristics. Where is this self-preservation? Where is this self-preservation justified? What is the self I'm trying to preserve? This is what it finally comes to. And that may take a while to find out what that self is that one wants to preserve. And it has to be feeling, not intellectual. But it starts intellectual. When I make an inquiry, I'm always starting intellectually. Now, the mind says, now I'm making this inquiry. Okay, that's an intellectual statement, right? But then the inquiry goes into, okay, where is this self in here that I'm trying to preserve? And that self-preservation, that actual activity is the underlying factor of every problem and misery in the world. That's it. That's Baba Tanha, craving to be. Self-preservation is a better word because it makes we know it better, it has more impact. So now... When that prodding (coughs) seems to come up against a barrier, I've been going back to developing joy in the heart because it gives greater strength to go on prodding. Yes, yes. Perfectly reasonable. Perfectly reasonable. The, The more the mind is able to experience this joy, what the way of, you know, this particularly second jhana, the easier it can see, or not can, is willing to see that the whole self-preservation bit is a myth. Because it, is, it has what it wants, it's got the joy, so therefore it's quite willing to ag- admit that everything it used to think dear was a mistake. But the mind that has not such joy will fight against that, tooth and nail, even though intellectually it might agree, but feelingly it will fight against it. So it's very, yes, it's very reasonable to develop more joy. And also the next step of that contentment, which is the third one, which I haven't explained in any detail at all, or not explained at all, um, is also very helpful. But without that, the mind won't agree. So now you have your inside part. And you'd have to have it one day. (laughs) I I think Pierre asked before, when we were talking about the four elements, um, there were, I think you said two more, um, and you said space, I remember. What's the other one? Consciousness. Consciousness. Space and consciousness. Um, it comes up when I'm looking at that always as energy. When when I've looked at the at these elements and I'm looking for something more, I see it always as energy. And how how does that feel as energy? It, it feels much better than consciousness because energy seems to be something that I can see as universal and something that actually goes through everything in a different in somehow in an unnamed way if you quite different consciousness which seems to be something that um, is 
Well, first of all, I'm not quite sure what we're talking about. Are we talking about the fifth and sixth jhana, infinity of space and infinity of consciousness? Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> well, how, uh, why would you otherwise say that you prefer energy to consciousness where you're exper- um, experimenting to see it as an element? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Rather than as a jhana? Okay. Um, so then you were saying, I want to see the consciousness element, but I'm perceiving it as, as energy. Right. Now, here we come to the difficulty which I mentioned earlier that the word energy is used totally differently in our language from what we were uh, having uh, discussing before. Mental energy is what we were discussing before. I think, I don't know, but I think you're saying you're uh, perceiving energy as you're perceiving movement. Is that what you're perceiving? Because energy in this case means strength. Yes, no, I'm perceiving it as yeah, but that's a thought. That's thought. Yes, but how do you perceive it? What is its its uh, what is the or what is this inner seeing of it? Or are you talking about the way to how to think about it? Okay, uh, the the element of consciousness. Okay, the element of consciousness is to be is not to be thought about. That's why I didn't mention them. And neither is the element of space to be thought about. These two are fifth and sixth jhana. And then you know all about it. They are actually meditative experiences. Now, if you absolutely insist on thinking about it, space is not very difficult, is it? Because, I mean, you can see it everywhere and inside of yourself. Okay. And consciousness, if you have to think about it, is universal. But it is the sixth jhana. And therefore, when it is experienced as a sixth jhana, there's no question. So if you're thinking of energy or life force as universal, consciousness is just that. And energy can also be perceived as an experience. But that's another next jhana. So do the jhanas. Listen to the teacher. To say that it is universal, does it mean that it's something permanent? The universe is not permanent. It's constantly contracting and expanding. Universal does not mean permanent. Universe is, is going to collapse completely and then arise and come and go. Universe does this all the time. And we do it with it. It doesn't mean permanent. So what is there to say it's vibration? For what? For consciousness? Vibration instead of what? Instead of um, universal energy. Yes. Yes. That's what it's perceived as. As vibration. But that's in the jhana. There's no use thinking about that. That's got to be done. But it's all right to think about universal consciousness, but it doesn't really do much. And that's why I didn't mention them either. And the Buddha didn't either. I mean, he does mention them at some other places, but in this particular context, he didn't mention Because these other four, you can you know, feel. You can feel saliva, you can feel earth, you can feel temperature, right? And you can feel air, wind, breath. 
no problem. He wants us, he wants to get us away from conceptualizing. There's a very good book, Concept and Meaning, which, sorry, sorry, Concept and Reality, by Venerable Nyanananda. Very worthwhile reading, if one has a mind that goes along those pathways. Um, he is the um, second monk after Nyanarama, who's my teacher, and he's my translator, because Nyanarama doesn't speak English, and Nyanananda speaks perfect English. And the book is Concept and Reality, and it uh, really shows us that we are constantly conceptualizing and always falling into traps with it. And reality is, this is earth element. I can feel it. That's reality. And therefore, the space and consciousness elements need to be also experienced. And the Buddha's teaching constantly tries to get us away from all that, into the reality of what we really know. If we were not conceptualizing, but only having reality in our mind, we would never have this absurdity of the ego delusion. It wouldn't be possible. But we can't do that because we are conceptualizing. And this is how we are taught also. Our, our ordinary uh, secular teaching is for concepts. 